0: Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Bloecology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle for men. So I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson and today we've got an interview with Andre Tomlin. Now, Andre has had a remarkable career in evidence-based medicine and I'll come back to that in a few moments. You will find show notes for today's episode at bloecology.io forward slash 028 if you're new to the show, then welcome. It's great to have you on board. But Ecology Podcast is all about using evidence to help us and science to help us get a little bit fitter, stay a little bit healthier and improve the quality of our lives and our lifestyles. Uh, sometimes I'm just discussing evidence, but at the moment we're going through a little series of interviews across all sorts of topics, whether it's about fitness or running and whether it's about mental health. Um, and we'd just like to delve a little bit deeper into that. If you're already familiar with the show, and you want to get a little bit more involved, that will be fantastic. Signing up for the newsletter is one option, um, and you can find out how to do that at blocology.io forward slash journal. So um, a little bit more about So, He's had a remarkable career. And to many extents, as we discussed in the interview, and it, it was perhaps something I would have liked to have delved in to more depth, he was really there at the start. And he reminded me of my assumption, that my preconception that actually... I forget that we think that evidence-based medicine and that approach has just been around forever and it's the normal way to go about things, or at least that's what I think. Perhaps that's my own bias. And he points out, back in the 90s, it was still a rather new thing and people were still getting accustomed to it. And then doctors in the medical profession at times were a little bit hostile to some of these changes. And in particular, that might have been the case in some um, areas of mental health. So Andre's been involved with mental health and he started the Mental Elf Website ELF back in 2011, and it's I've known about it for years. It's a remarkable resource, and I wholeheartedly recommend it. I'll put links in the show notes. If you have any interest in staying up to date with the latest mental health research, then it's definitely a place to bookmark, visit regularly, um, and keep yourself um, and and go there for um, for all your needs um, in that area. It's also um, he's now set up the National ELF Service. And that covers all sorts of areas beyond mental health as well. It's really, um, he's doing a fantastic job of trying to tame the beast that is medical evidence. So as well as um, talking a little bit about that, we also get into discussing Andre's experience of postnatal depression. Um, now there's limited evidence when it comes to this experience in men, but it certainly seems to happen, um, though there's a requirement for more research. But he had a personal experience of that. And he talks a little bit about what happened to him when he was visiting his GP and how he managed since then. Uh, we also go into a little bit into the ginormous Lancet analysis that was published recently on antidepressants and whether they work or not. So slight spoiler, the answer seems to be yes, more or less. But we talk a little bit more detail of that. Uh, We're talking a little bit more detail about that as well. So the first thing I did was ask him to tell us a little bit more about how he got involved in evidence based mental health.
1: Uh, yeah, I've I've been interested in mental health my whole life, I think. Um, I didn't really realize that was a a kind of lifetime academic interest until about 20 years ago when I was working in Oxford. So I was working in a library. That was my first job after university. And it was a health sciences library. And that was in Oxford in the mid-90s when evidence-based healthcare was just starting to come over here to the UK. And we were exploring how best to Use research in practice. You know, at that point, evidence-based medicine was a kind of heretical belief that you could say <laughs> to doctors, you know, look at this and use it to inform your practice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was training psychiatrists for two or three years, um, showing them Cochrane systematic reviews um, and teaching them how to critically appraise. And you know, I'm an information scientist; I don't have a clinical background, and I got a lot of very blank looks and a lot of quite aggressive looks oh, a psychiatrist
0: who said yeah you, know, you don't have to teach me you have to be a clinician that's really interesting actually and to be honest that i, I, I will come just very quick because of course i was a i was a medical student in the mid 90s looking at your mm. website about at the same time as you were just doing that first job mm-hmm. and um i guess i got really interested in critical appraisal but it, it, in many ways i've just kind of grown up with it and you forget that actually there was a certain amount of hostility it's so kind of ubiquitous now in many ways that we should do it and it's kind of accepted wisdom that we should do everything Based on evidence, possibly even tilting too far at times, um, Mm. in terms of you know the limitation accepting the limitations of evidence. But um, it's really interesting to hear that and be reminded that actually it's not a it's not a given.
1: Well, that's a medic's view, though, isn't it? I think if you're a nurse (laughs) or a social worker or you know another kind of frontline health practitioner, you might not have that same perspective.
0: Yeah, Um, but certainly same perspective about same perspective about evidence that it's accepted.
1: And the same perspective and experience of critical appraisal, yeah, okay. uh, the same knowledge of reading and using research. Yeah. I think you know, critical appraisal skills are taught across most of the you know, health professional roles now, but they're not necessarily used in practice. Uh, and so you know, once you get yeah. 5, 10, 15 years away from your training – you're not regularly reading randomised controlled trials in the Lancet psychiatry and no. thinking about how they impact on your practice. You're firefighting at the front line and you know doing stuff to try and help people.
0: Yeah, yeah I think to be honest, Andrew, you're, ex- you're exposing all my biases there in many ways because I, I suppose I'm a, more of an academic GP and I've always been interested in reading the evidence and blithering on about it. Um, and actually, that's not necessarily the norm with a lot of GPs and other medics either.
1: No, and I think Um, we say that we are evidence-based now. You know, when I first started working in in evidence, this was kind of pre-nice. We didn't really have any evidence-based guidelines. We had a few randomized controlled trials. This was the beginning of the Cochrane collaboration. Mm. We knew something about, you know, reliable evidence, but there wasn't much out there. Um, Now, of course, we're drowning in evidence. You (laughs) know, in psychiatry, I think there are kind of 20 new systematic reviews published every day um, that, you know, are relevant to frontline practice. It's impossible to keep up to date with this avalanche of evidence. Yeah. And we've got amazing technology as well. You know, so we, we don't have any excuse because at the frontline, we can access really good summarized evidence that should be impacting on our practice, but we're still not doing it. Mm. You know, organizations say they are evidence based professional membership bodies, trusts, charities. But actually, when you scratch below the surface a little bit, people aren't really. Closing this gap that we've got between research and practice—it's still yeah. fifteen years.
0: It's um, it's interesting. I guess maybe it's just—it's all happened so quickly, and it's perhaps part of the internet um, as well that we're just we're just buried in that currently. And I think it's um, well, I I think I think you're absolutely right. And we, you know, you can, as you say, you scratch it and you'll find that It's the same old clinical bias and opinion-based medicine that's been going on for decades that is mm. probably still holding sway. But as I, I you say, it's, a, it's almost an insurmountable. It looks like an insurmountable task. You just feel like saying, "Stop the world, uh, you know, let, let's just all research stop, please, while we just work out what we've got <laughs> and do well, think do something with it."
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's a it's a complicated picture, but it's more of a cultural change that we need to make for frontline health practitioners to actually use evidence in practice. Uh-huh. So. You know, if you talk to frontline mental health nurses, for example, and they're in many ways my kind of target population, I think if I can get frontline mental health nurses using evidence, then I can do it across all professional groups because of the pressures that are on frontline nurses, also because they don't necessarily have the skills, um, you know, to read research, to think about what's good and what's not good, what's relevant to them, how do they act upon it. Um, and, you know, there's actually quite a lot of um demand i suppose in that population in nurses to 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 get more into research to to read more about it yeah they are incredibly interested in it um but it's a lack of time and it's a lack of skill and it's a lack of access sometimes to the evidence in a way that is accessible and usable for them yeah if you give them a nice guideline or a, a 300 page cochrane systematic review or an article in the the Lancet, they're really very hard to, to understand and to yeah. use. Um, mm. So I think we need to deliver the evidence in a much more uh, implementable way yeah. in order for people to actually use it.
0: Interesting, I think maybe GPs have been, we forget how lucky we've been in the last few years, that one of the sort of the standard way of updating yourself for all GPs these days is to attend a sort of GP update course, and there's two or three main mm. providers out there um nb medical red whale and their, their their approach of all those organizations has been to take the medical evidence look at what already exists and tend to distill it into practical in practice uh, um you know nuggets that actually take into account pr- pragmatic and realistic and you know incorporate them into your daily routine so uh, we've pr- I, I, perhaps we've been very fortunate and it's that kind of thing that you know that it, as you as you suggest mental health nurses or other healthcare professionals or Gosh, well, the public at large would be it's just be really helpful to have, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, very much so. And I think um, that certainly doesn't exist right across all of health and social care. And no. you know, social care I think is a another really good example um, where you know we're beginning to get more interested in how we kind of uh, summarize, synthesize evidence, and present it in a way which is useful for not just frontline practice, but you know, decisions on commissioning and organizing services and you know making the best with the very small amount of money we've got available Mm. um it just seems sensible to um you know to use research for that purpose but in social care nobody has any access at all to the evidence you know they don't have a a a trust library that they can you know go and get a journal article from they're completely cut off from it Mm.
0: yeah gosh yeah that's a huge gap isn't it Mm. so uh, one of the things that this, this leads us in nicely i, I, I want we, i want to ask you about a couple of specific sort of clinical scenarios and related to mental health but uh, this mm-hmm. is an opportunity for you to tell us a little bit about the mental elf and because clearly that kind of it fits in with the, your approach and your philosophy about trying to get that evidence out there and get it out there in a palatable way tell it, tell us yeah. tell it for people i'm i'm sure lots of people if you have been involved in the field at all you'll ever come across the mental health but if anyone hasn't come across that um the website t- tell us a wee bit more about it
1: Yeah. So mental health is a, is a pun. Do you get it? It's, um, so, you know, I've been working in mental health since, uh, 1999 and I've done a lot of websites for the NHS, for professional membership bodies, for charities. And most of them have been for health professionals and most of them, not because of me, have been pretty inaccessible and pretty unusable. You know, NHS websites are by default, not very good. I don't know why that is, but they've all got terrible <laughs> blue colour schemes and the information is pretty inaccessible and they don't really think too much about lowering the barrier to entry. They just give people access to the, you know, the primary literature, which mm-hmm. as I've said already, you know, is pretty unpleasant to read, to consume. So when we started mental health about seven years ago, we decided that we wanted to to do what a lot of patient websites do, make the content easily accessible really easy to use but also make it based on the best available evidence so reliable as well as accessible and usable and you know we did that in a way which we hoped was engaging which was funny so we used jokes we used puns so we've got a mental elf and that is part of the national elf service um and when you become uh, a member of the website when you sign up you, you become an elf um And there's lots of kind of fun ways that you can engage with the research. So you can read blogs, you can comment on them, you can share them, you can join in with professional development. Um, And you get points and you become an elf professional and you graduate and you become an elf professor. And it's it's a way of incentivizing people to read more research, to use research more in their practice, Um, and for that to be fun and engaging. Um, and I think, you know, websites for patients have done that really successfully since websites began really. Um, but we're still in this sort of weird position where the information we give to health professionals, uh, and to other people making decisions about patient care is, is just really not very good, not very accessible. So obviously we started that in 2011 when blogs and social media were really taking off, Mm. um, And we were really lucky to, um, yeah, I guess to just catch the wave of that. Um, And the format that we use is really um, accessible. So we ask people to write blogs about new pieces of research. So I've got about 270 people who write mental health blogs for me. Gosh, Um, is it that many now? Yeah, and all sorts of different people. Mm. Um, So, you know, patients, carers, clinicians, researchers, policymakers, really broad international mixed group of people um and they write blogs for me because um we've got a platform which has got a big audience so they know when they publish a blog on mental health it's going to get a few thousand people reading it on the day that it's published it's going to get disseminated across social media we use twitter and facebook a lot um, and people are going to comment on it that's the really key thing so my focus as a um an information provider is to try and facilitate democratic conversations about the evidence not just amongst health professionals but amongst a, a broad group of people so you know if we publish a blog about antidepressants for depression we will get patients and carers and psychiatrists and psychologists and nurses and ot's and you know all sorts of different people reading that blog sharing it discussing it on social media um and learning from each other and that conversation is much richer because of the um constituent parts you know it's not a bunch of psychiatrists talking about it together um and we learn from each other and i think that's the real power of social media in helping us learn from new evidence
0: yeah i think it's a phenomenal platform now and anybody who's not already familiar with it should certainly and wants to read about get into the evidence should certainly get over there i think I, i'm surprised it's only 2011 i seem to remember the mental elf existed before that because i was wh- back in the day about 10 years ago when i used to blog and i was a bit more on the skeptic side of things um i seem to remember i would have i would have p- pinned it as longer but um
1: oh that's good so yeah, know we started in may 2011 but he's obviously Ferreted into your psyche somehow. That's the thing with the woodland yeah, characters.
0: Yeah, that, well, yeah, yeah, they are. They're very mischievous in that regard.
1: <laughs> they burrow deep. Yeah, so I, uh, I really loved the um, elves and the shoemaker as a child. That was the inspiration for yeah the mental elf and the other elves. You know, they just appear at six o'clock in the morning, having blogged about a new piece of evidence. Don't know where that came from, but it's quite nice.
0: I think. Yeah, and I <laughs> and I think there's a there's a great deal of fun on the site, but it, you know, there's an extraordinarily in, you know the, the the posts are very high quality you know in terms of looking at the evidence and understanding it as well you're not there's elves they they know their they know their stuff
1: yeah so we combine i mean i think that's one of the things that people often confuse because of the fun and the silliness of it yeah people often think well it's, it's not you know good quality evidence-based content but we combine a really systematic approach to critically appraising and presenting evidence with what hopefully is a Uh, an easy to access format so the 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 blogs are all a similar structure they have a an introduction to the topic they have methods results conclusions um so reporting what the research has done and what they say but then they also focus on the strengths and limitations of that evidence and it's a critical friend perspective so people never write about their own work yeah they always write about a piece of research in an area where they have a lot of expertise and experience. and they talk about the implications of the research. You know, so what should we be doing now? Is this new knowledge that we should be acting upon? Should we be doing other research? Should we be feeding this into guidelines? Should we be, you know, changing our clinical practice? Um, and for me, that's the real strength of it is that you've got a kind of a personal perspective, whether that's a patient saying, you know, because of this new evidence, I'm going to start exercising or whatever it might be, or a a psychiatrist who says, you know, because of this evidence, I'm gonna stop prescribing this drug to this group of patients. Yeah. Um that's the bridging the gap, trying to implement, which is obviously, you know, as we've said, the main problem we've got.
0: Yeah. And I think the other thing as well is you've obviously you've gone uh, you know, there's the it is a now i think you started with mental health, didn't you? It was the nat- it was the obviously the mental elf initially. But um you've you've branched into all sorts of other um uh, areas as well you know from commissioning to which is a you know an area sorely in need of some evidence um and to um <laughs> he says we really to um you know dentistry i'm just looking through the list now there's lots of them all the little elves
1: yeah we've we've kind of piloted it in lots of different areas i think we've got a focus still on mental health and social care and learning disabilities yeah um the dentistry health is a bit of a, a kind of outlier in some ways in terms of a clinical topic but yeah. um it, it's run by a guy called Derek Richards who I know very well and have done for years and he blogs about dental research and it's got a big audience and yeah um mm. i think our focus in the next couple of years will be on um those existing four or five topics but also on child health okay. so we're we're hopefully going to Get the child out out of hibernation and, and blogging again. It's a really important area. Yeah. Um, and education. So we've got an education elf that I'm working on with a um, a great uh, psychologist called Pookie Nightsmith. um So that's education, not health education, but just education.
0: Yeah, I was about to ask generally whether it was whether it was more medical education or healthcare professionals, but you know, it's just education as in teaching primary, you know, primary school, secondary school, everything.
1: Exactly. And I think for Gosh, me, that's a really exciting area because you know I think education are probably a couple of decades behind in terms of how they use evidence to inform their practice. But yeah, real thirst in school leaders and in teachers to do Inter- that.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Certainly, my well, my kids are up at all at secondary school now, and interestingly, actually, some of the things that they've been putting forward to them, are, I'm a bit aware have been are increasingly about how they're teaching them to study are edu- evidence based. So I've been really impressed because I haven't seen that at all. I, heard, I certainly haven't got any impression from from the medical students that have come up that they're aware of these kind of evidence-based approaches to learning and, you know, uh, um, education generally. I mean, there's so yeah. much psychological sort of theory, uh, you know, uh, good evidence out there to, that relates to that, that simply hasn't been implemented.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think schools generally have a, a, a slightly poor um, reputation at going for dodgy science um and you know (laughs) education generally i think does yeah um so you know the brain gym kind of stuff that gets sold into schools and i think there is still that kind of sense of any provider can develop any kind of tin pot theory and sell it and some schools will go for it and some you know multi-academy trusts might go for it but i think that reputation is you know increasingly unwarranted because schools are becoming more savvy and you've got organizations that are producing really good summaries of the evidence um and yeah so we're trying to support that i think with with blogs and putting um evidence into a format that's freely available you know all of our blogs will always be freely available for people um and make it available on social media where obviously teachers are uh in the 10 minutes they've got on the safe be- before they have to sort of pass out in the evening after all that marking they can yeah have a look <laughs> at a bit of twitter and facebook so
0: yeah um it's an amazing it's an amazing it has grown just incredibly. And so is that what you're doing full time now, Andre, pretty much? Are you uh, with are innovation it's I think you're with is that your company yeah, now?
1: Yeah. So we spun out a company from Oxford University in two thousand and two. That that still exists, that's a consultancy company. We do yeah. evidence space consultancy work. So we do websites and, and other work for for charities and for various groups. Um mental health is sort of ninety percent what I do now. Um and a big part of it is uh, Uh, a, a live conference service that we run called beyond the room so we take um lots of uh expertise and an audience to mental health events and we live tweet and podcast and live stream and do all sorts of clever digital stuff to try and help the event reach a much bigger audience so it might be that we cover um you know, a one day conference, which is being delivered by a university who are trying to disseminate a new piece of research, or it might be a, a big international uh, colloquium uh, or a, you know, more of a kind of workshop event that a charity is running on a, a new campaign. Um, and you might get 100, 200 people in the room, but we might get one or 2000 people on Twitter following that event live, watching videos of talks and panel discussions. Listening to podcast interviews that we do and actually participating in the conversation via Twitter. Twitter is amazing for that, I think, because, yeah. you know, gives you the ability to in real time engage in a subject
0: yeah well um, we'll certainly um we'll make sure we get the i I'm increasingly finding that I've tried the other social media and they just don't quite take and I was at mm. Twitter near the start I think old enough, and I just find it a really good fit for this kind of thing it re- works really well and certainly through the medical journal we've involved we've been involved in trying to have like primary care journal clubs and other things and it just seems to work it seems twitter seems to function really well for it
1: yeah, I think so it's got a bit of a bad reputation, hasn't it in the press um you know people Say so you go on Twitter and you're going to get all sorts of abuse. And yeah, I mean, obviously there is that there, um, and you're much more likely to get that if you're a woman, yes, um, and non-white. Mm. Um, but in my experience, I mean, I've set myself up as a friendly woodland character, so I've probably um <laughs> protected a certain amount. There,
0: there that. are a few trolls out there, particularly hazardous <laughs> to elves, obviously. Yeah. but by and large, people have a people have a you know, they have their protective instincts kick in. I
1: think. Yeah, I've only had one really unpleasant cyberbullying experience in okay. 10 years or so that i've been on twitter yeah um yeah, that's probably not too bad yeah, i think uh well yeah exactly the mental health community i think polices itself really well and people support each other really well and yeah i think that's maybe not the case in other areas but i'm, I'm very happy with the connections i've got and the support that i get personally and professionally
0: yeah so one thing I wanted to ask you about, Andrea, was about a couple of um, clinical areas, and um, one of them was, and particularly relate to men. Now, obviously, there's lots of mental health topics which you could delve into relate to men, but the one that I was that thought might be interesting just to look at was about new fathers and, and depression, a kind of a postnatal mm. depression for chaps. Now, n- and that's not to in any shape or form um, uh, undervalue or underappreciate the the appalling kind of problems people women can have with postnatal depression but just to recognize that actually for men there can be difficulties as well with kind of major life changes and i know that you'd had some personal experience of this yourself and had written a really great article about whether we should screen new dads for depression
1: Mm. yeah i got i got depression when um my third child was born i've got three kids Um, i've got five-year-old twins and a three-year-old and um I suppose I knew a lot about this before it happened to me. Uh, But as a typical middle-aged man, I didn't really recognize my own signs and symptoms uh, until it had been going on for quite some time. Um, And that's been the case for me with other health conditions. I've got type 1 diabetes. I've got lots of experience from my child of anxiety. um, But I didn't really ever have any kind of clinical depression until um in this postnatal period with a with a young child and toddlers um and yeah i I was typical you know ignored all of it myself threw myself into my work tried to do as much kind of childcare and support my partner as possible um and it was kind of nine months in that i finally um kind of accepted that i needed some help i went to see the gp yeah that's a long time then nine months yeah yeah it certainly i could have done it a lot sooner than i did
0: And i think um, before i go any further i think i need to having read your blog i need to apologize for you you're about to say you went to see the gp but it sounds like almost from the professional point of view we need to apologize for that encounter
1: yeah <laughs> yeah the gp was um not my normal gp um i couldn't get a point an appointment with my normal gp who i think would have been exactly what i needed because i've got a an established relationship with her. I've known her for many years and I've always had a really positive, um, experience with her. Um, no, he was, uh, you know, as bad as a GP can be, I think. Yeah. uh, I I would, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of didn't make any eye contact. Um, I'm opening up about, um, my depression for the first time, really, um, to anyone. Um, he, printed off a phq9 form and pushed it across the desk towards me and didn't say anything um and i said do you want me to do something with this and he said you need to you know fill that out here's a pen um and so i kind of filled it out and i was very depressed um can't remember the exact score but you know severe and um he said well i don't think um I don't think these will help you. They probably won't help you, but I can prescribe you some some drugs. Um, and he prescribed me some uh, Prozac and sent me away and said, you know, come back. Um, but he just left me with that sense of really not caring at all and really not wanting to engage with it. Yeah, um, It's just like he wanted me out of the room as quickly as possible. And I asked him about, um psychological support and he said we don't do that here i can't refer you to that that's a um something you have to do yourself there's a website you can go to and you fill in your details and they will be able to potentially help you and i was actually really lucky um because that in bristol at that point there was a a pilot scheme going on which uh, referred people incredibly quickly to IAP services and so within i think two weeks i had an initial kind of triage appointment at an IAP service and then within three or four weeks um, from my original presentation in primary care I was seeing a counsellor um, which is obviously not the story generally uh, across mm. the board for people so
0: yeah 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 so that bad experience so I think anybody listening I would certainly any chaps who want to go to the blokes who want to go to the doctor but I think that's a really un- I would like to think that was an unusual experience and it's particularly horrific um, yes, I certainly I, hope I totally so I
1: agree yeah. In my experience, having spoken to a lot of men who have been through this, having participated in quite a lot of online chats with, with dads with mental health issues, mine was probably the worst experience of all. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. And it goes to show it still happens. So
1: yeah. Yeah. But you know, I can kind of see from the perspective of a busy primary care professional that somebody rocking up and saying, I'm depressed is not necessarily an easy thing to deal with. Yeah,
0: I, yeah. I, I, that's. I mean, yeah. I, there isn't really a get out from your. Conduct, to be honest, I'm not prepared to give them a. It is. It's always hard when you see. It's a longer consultation. You, you know, and you're having a. You know, it's a busy day, but that, you just can't get away with it. Um, mm. you just can't. It, it, you can't really justify that kind of. That's poor. So we. I kind of got back to the kind of the depression for men around that sort of perinatal period. Yeah. Um, it's surprisingly
1: common, isn't it? Yeah, it's not quite as common as it is in women. I don't think it no, is in no. new mothers, but it's not far off. You know, we know about 5 to 10% of men have clinical depression. Um, well, I say we know. Um, research suggests it's around about that much. To be fair, though, there is almost no research about postnatal depression in men. Um, anxiety levels in, in that population, new dads, so that maybe slightly higher 5 to 15%. Um, But one of the things that I did, obviously, being an elf and getting depressed, I I went to the literature and had a look and saw what there was and was really surprised by the complete lack of, you know, really good quality research looking at this. And when I went online and started saying, you know, I've got postnatal depression, um, a lot of people, um, what? You're a man and you've got postnatal depression. How's that possible? Men don't get postnatal depression. Um, And For a while, I didn't call it postnatal depression. I stopped. Um, but for me, in my mind, the reason that I was depressed was of the complete um life changing emotional turmoil and stress of being a new dad um and you know not in any sense to kind of apportion any blame no no no, but that that's just that's how it was um, yeah it was family life and work life and emotional stress and uh so it is postnatal depression,
0: yeah. There's a really interesting thing there, and I'm just kind of thinking it through. That I'm a bit, I'm a bit, it makes me a bit nervous calling it postnatal depression as well, because you don't want, I don't want to feel that I'm kind of, you know, uh, under, as I said at the start, undervaluing the problem in women. But actually, perhaps the problem here is that there's a little bit of a, 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 you know, an assumption implicit that really it's all to do with women's hormones and that's why they get depressed. When in fact, actually, you know, in in a slightly pejorative way, which, we shouldn't, which isn't really the case at all. And actually, a lot of women who do have problems as well, it's because of this. It's a massive life change having a baby. Um, you know, it affects your sleep. You might affect physical exercise. There's a whole sort of host of factors that can interact. And those factors are going to exist for men just as much as women um in that immediate postnatal period and so actually i think it's perfectly legitimate to call it postnatal depression but perhaps we also need to recognize that there's a bit of a risk that i think some people might think postnatal depression well it's all about the baby blues which is this kind of immediate period which is probably to do with a short change in hormonal change a couple of days later but postnatal depression is a very different thing than being a bit weepy a couple of days after because your hormones are just changing around a wee bit Um, which i think is what more what baby blues is about uh, postnatal depression is a very you know extremely serious kind of life-threatening um illness and mm. uh, in women and certainly obviously men as well if you kind of that those anything that puts you through a huge life change like that is going to be uh potentially have a huge impact so it's, it's interesting that there's um been so it's been looked at in um there's so little out there
1: yeah absolutely and what there is out there is is qualitative okay um and yeah so I mean one of the one of the pieces of um, writing that I did when I first got diagnosed or shortly after I got diagnosed um, was about a qualitative study that looked at perinatal mental health problems in in, in new dads and yeah. kind of recognized that um, not only are they common but um, they're legitimate and we need to recognize them and and yeah. I suppose the 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 services that we provide for that population for new dads who are depressed are pretty non-existent Mm. um and you know i think a lot of the stuff that we say about mental illness and and you know recognizing um that it's okay to say i'm not okay and you know all that kind of stuff that is generally in the in the public consciousness now because of a lot of the anti-stigma work that's gone on yeah that's all very relevant to um depression in new dads yeah. But I think there is something specific about being a father and navigating that space and wanting to be a good dad and having to, you know, do all the other stuff, um, you know, providing and protecting and partnering and, you know. Yeah. Um, I think the support that we give men in that situation in the 21st century is actually quite poor. I don't think we've yet got our heads around how to support you know new men if you like people yeah. who are actively involved in um looking after their children as well as providing for them yeah um
0: yeah i was gonna say you can really see how it feeds into the kind of that kind of social pressures toxic masculinity sides that those kind of all those expectations around being a provider and a protector and actually they're just going to they're going to feed that kind of cycle which can be so destructive to so many to so many men
1: yeah absolutely and it's interesting i've got a friend here in bristol who um, is a new dad um he's a gay man um and he had depression um in this postnatal period and we were kind of talking about you know what we had available to us and both of us were saying you know we got a lot of help from the antidepressants that we were prescribed Um, But there was also lots of other stuff that we had to have in combination with that to help us recover. Um, But I was thinking about, you know, what was available to me in terms of psychosocial support and, you know, what is available to new parents. Um, And, you know, compared to new mums, new mums are really well served in the city of Bristol by the community, you know, by Um, baby groups and play cafes and, you know, social media support. Um, it might be that people living out in, you know, more rural situations don't have access to, to all of those things. But I think, you know, that, that stuff is there for new mums. Um, not to say that they can all access it because obviously some new mums with depression are housebound and Mm -hmm. really struggle to, to get out at all. But I think there's a real lack of similar support for men um and certainly thinking about being a gay man in that scenario you know it's really difficult to yeah to join in with those um conversations um and those support networks so yeah i think we need to do a lot more yeah
0: so in yeah because i you say for at least at least for women at the moment there's a, there's a recognition of postnatal depression and it's, kind of, it's fairly Im- embedded in services these days from the the kind of the the, the kind of um, fund statutory requirements for midwives to visit immediately after, and then the handover to the health visitor, and then uh, screening processes that go on, and you know the Edinburgh na- Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Score will be done in all of those women, and there are at least there's a, there's a lot of effort to identify them, and obviously whether they can access those supports, there's lots of other factors involved. Um, your article looked at whether or not there was any good evidence for um, a screening process for men that would be equivalent. And the answer was, and it was a very, say so you very honestly looked at the evidence and didn't really, the evidence isn't really quite there yet, is it?
1: No, and that's really difficult for me to kind of accept. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important that we don't kind of confuse screening men for depression with having a health s- service and, and health professionals who are attentive to men who may have depression. And I think those two things are very separate. You know, There's a lot of people calling for screening for depression in new fathers, saying, you know, we, we need to do this, obviously, because there's loads of men who um, may have this, and let's screen them. And, you know, the evidence doesn't show that that works at the moment. It doesn't show that that's an effective way of, of detecting depression when it does exist. But that shouldn't stop midwives and health visitors and all of the health professionals involved in um, Pregnancy and, and childbirth, uh, around that perinatal period, for saying, you know, are you okay, Dad? Yeah. Um, yeah. How is it for you? You know, we're doing that really well in mums now, um, and you know, a a, um, a colleague and friend of mine, Mark Williams, um, who is a um, a campaigner for for mental health and fathers online, um, has started that as a kind of Twitter campaign. Are yeah. you okay, Dad? Yeah. Um, I think that's a really important thing for all. Health professionals to recognise and to, you know, work somehow into their practice.
0: Yeah, and I think um, absolutely. The, 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 just because the screening evidence isn't there, that we can't. We, you can't just turn away from it. And I, I think the other thing as well is, even if you're not a healthcare professional and you're listening, it's actually just having that awareness that it could be something that happens to you, or it could be something that happens to your to the other bloke down the road, or someone you haven't seen for a while, and. There's just a bit of an assumption you don't hear from other men when they've got babies because they're busy just trying to get through, fight their way through life. And actually maybe that just, how are you doing, dad? You know, kind of, how are you doing, mate? uh, Actually contact maybe is something is just, could be incredibly useful to be aware of.
1: It's about finding the right situation in which to have the conversation, I think, isn't it? I mean, for me, since my kids have gone to school, um the support that we have from other parents around, you know, the reception class and the year one class mm. is amazing. And there's a lot of dads who, you know, are involved in dropping their kids off and picking their kids up from school. And that's actually a really good situation. You know, when you're waiting at the school gates, <laughs> um, when there's the dad who's looking slightly, you know, pale and withdrawn yeah, um, and standing on his own and looking at his phone, that's a really good situation in which to, um, you know offer some support and ask some of those questions
0: yeah so one of the things you mentioned there andrea was that you had a really good experience Well, not so a really good experience but you found that antidepressants helped you and um i was interested in just talking a wee bit more about this because there was a big study that antidepressants you've written an article about this as well on um uh, on the blog and mm. there was a, a huge study meta-analysis in the um, in the lancet just um earlier this year and um I think there's a I think as you mentioned in the blog, there's just this little bit of a thing that antidepressants have had a bit of a bashing and are regarded as in a number of quarters. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that study and maybe a couple of things that it showed.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean I think it's not just antidepressants, it's any medication. You know, (laughs) I think there is a anti-medication, anti-psychiatry thing going on generally, but certainly on social media. Um, and you know, that's really found its way into, um, popular press and to TV. So there was a panorama program that was, um, shown, uh, earlier on this year, I think it was kind of February time this year called a prescription for murder, mm. uh, which came out at the same time as, uh, a book by a guy called Yohan Hari. Um, and, Really, you know, the the, 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 the thrust of all of this stuff was that antidepressants don't just have side effects. Um, you know, we, we obviously know that all effective treatments, drugs and other treatments have side effects. Um, and the side effects of antidepressants are well known, but um, that they actually are dangerous, that they kill people. Um, and that they don't have any effect, uh, any positive effect, and that it's all a kind of pharma um conspiracy and that we're we're drugging up increasing numbers of people and actually we're not helping them at all and we're potentially killing them. Um, and you know that's that that feeds into this 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 kind of social media conversation and a lot of people pick up on that. Mm. Um, and obviously a lot of people who don't know very much about it see, oh there's a BBC Panorama program. Panorama's a reliable program, you know, that's the BBC and they're saying antidepressants are dangerous yeah um so i I was kind of really concerned about that concerned that people would potentially stop taking medication which was really helping them um which was really you know life-saving um Mm. and so when this new trial came out new meta-analysis rather came out this is a network meta-analysis it's the biggest study ever conducted in psychiatry Um,
0: probably anywhere it's a monster it's a monster
1: yeah absolutely um so i think the thing that was exciting for me was that they started to not just do meta-analyses where they kind of get all the randomized controlled trials and pull them and have big numbers and so have you know, more reliable evidence, but a network meta-analysis where they're, they're kind of analyzing um, comparisons for efficacy. So they're looking at different drugs and how they relate to each other. Um, and that gives us a lot more um, certainty in the results, not just about the, um, the efficacy of these drugs, whether they work well, um, but also the acceptability and the potential side effects. Um, and so the the, the net, network meta-analysis kind of presented the results of this. And the, the results are pr- pretty complicated, actually, um, but they show um, in the very early stages of treatment, we're just looking at the first two months of treatment here with antidepressant use, um, that these drugs are effective um, and they have some side effects, but they are um, acceptable um, for um, a, a significant number of patients. So for me, this is really good, reliable evidence that antidepressants work. Um, and, you know, I think personally, I, I I have always known that and I've always looked at the evidence and always thought that we have that. But this is really much more robust um, than anything that's happened before.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and it also shows, you know, that the vast majority of trials are funded by drug companies. Yes. Um, we know that, you know, that's not surprising. Um, but the other thing that they did, which was which was great, was they found a huge amount of unpublished data. Yeah. Um, so they included a lot more evidence in this than any other review had ever before, because they contacted all the drug companies um, and all the, the researchers and, and organizations and got them to give them their unpublished data um and you know we've known for years that that's a big problem that research is is biased because there's probably a lot of negative studies small negative studies which didn't get published which aren't being included in these meta-analyses and so getting all those in is going to give us a much more robust result uh than we've had previously so yeah it was a really outstanding piece of work um and it was you know it it received some very negative press of course Mm. um it received some positive but rather oversimplified press so you know a lot of the journalists basically just took the list of antidepressants uh from the efficacy table and listed them in their articles saying "You know, these are the best antidepressants yeah you know search leaves at the top and then you've got this one and that one and and so that's just worrying because you know obviously this review doesn't say that um but yeah yeah that's that's kind of where we were at with it we were trying to present a blog which um navigated some of that controversy and said here's the evidence here's what we think about it yeah um, and gave it a personal perspective as well
0: yeah but well, we're certainly linked to it i think it's um you've done a great job of uh, what what is a as you say it's a remarkable piece of work as a piece of research and um the way they've gone about it and the um uh, the unpublished rates the, the unpublished data is remarkable compared to i'm not sure i've ever seen quite as much as that in a study that they've managed to gather together and it it, it does go a long way to that kind of con- that you know that publication bias that people are so anxious about and the drug company and pharma influence Um, it's a really powerful bit of evidence in the end
1: yeah yeah i think um the methodology part of it was, you know, as an information scientist, so somebody who spent twenty years looking at the methods of systematic reviews and RCTs, yeah. looking at how much unpublished data they got in there. I, I actually um couldn't believe that. <laughs> yeah. I but you know, I, I sort of um there was a sharp intake of breath and I had to kind of double check yeah the figures. That was absolutely astonishing. Yeah. Um and, you know, so that that part of the work, and the fact they've been very open as well, they put all their data um, yeah. on the internet, so any open science, um, you yeah. know, fans can really use this as a great example of how to do this in future. This is all out there and freely available. Um, yeah, yeah that's, that's one of the big problems that we've got currently, getting unpublished stuff out. And obviously, mm. the All Trials Project and Ben Goldacre with his trials trackers has yeah. made a good difference to try and... Uh, address that but it's still a um a lot more work to be done there yeah
0: so in terms of um, as a, in summary though it was a really good bit of evidence really interesting in terms i would say from uh, the perspective of anyone who's got any kind of the nuances of research but if you're just wondering anxious about me having been given an antidepressant the evidence it's pretty it's pretty you, you should feel a lot less anxious after that after you know knowing about this you should certainly have, you know no pun intended in terms of anxiety but you should certainly feel a lot better about um worrying about whether or not you should be taking an antidepressant that it, this this is not just pie in the sky drug company um fluff
1: no absolutely i mean the the other thing to say obviously is that this is um a short follow-up period included yes. in this review so it's just eight weeks yeah um and that's a, you know a really fair uh critique of this work you know we need evidence over a longer period that we can rely on and we don't really have that in in this format in this kind of network meta-analysis format there are obviously trials that look over a longer period than eight weeks but there aren't enough of them that all do that that we can pull them in this way um so yeah i think there's there's issues with getting off antidepressants which um are, are well worth talking about um but i think certainly um if you're depressed and you're thinking about what to do and you're thinking about the options um you know there's quite a few now drugs are one talking treatments are another you know there's obviously lifestyle changes like exercise and diet and there's things like mindfulness and you know you can download an app and there's all sorts of stuff available i think we've got really strong evidence for medication and for talking treatments and we've got emerging evidence for things like mindfulness and we've got pretty good evidence for lifestyle changes like exercise and diet um and so yeah it's a question of choosing what you know is is right for you some people just don't want you know cbt and other people just don't want drugs yeah fair enough
0: absolutely um
1: mm.
0: yeah so um andrew i think we've um i think we're just about out of time but so finally i must ask you to tell us just to, just let us know where we can find you online um, and where you hang out in terms of social
1: media yes yeah, so i'm mental health on Twitter and facebook um and so yeah you just search mental health and you'll find me um i'm on twitter all the time literally all the time uh so if you want to contact me the easiest thing to do is just to tweet me um and i will respond within about 30 seconds um i'm also on um our blog so if you google mental health you'll find the national health service and you'll see the mental health and all the other little elves um doing their stuff there uh and yeah i'm I'm really keen to work with anybody and and have conversations with anybody that's interested in mental health and particularly in using really good quality research to improve the the, the services that we provide um, so really open to working with people who are who have that same ethos
0: yeah andre th- thank you so much for spending the time uh, speaking to me today.
1: Oh, thanks, Ian. It's been a real pleasure. And yeah, I love, I love what you're doing with the podcast. And it's great that you're doing some mental health stuff in it now. I listened to the alcohol one you did a, a little while ago. Um, and yeah, it'd be really good to, to get more of this mental health stuff into your primary care population and this work.
0: Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. Uh, You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email or make contact via Twitter, Facebook and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blocology.io. Thanks again.